Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to The Francisca Show, the show on which people share their stories. This is the Survivor Special where survivors of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse come forward to share their experiences, thereby raising awareness and preventing the likelihood of it happening again. No further research has been done into these stories. This episode is intended for mature audiences, and listener discretion is advised. I am Francisca, and you are listening to the No More Silence special on The Francisca Show. I hope you had a beautiful Hanukkah, and I'm so excited to share this episode with you today. Our guest chose not to change his name. He does give identifying factors. However, if you would like to be interviewed or you know someone who would like to be interviewed, I am also looking to interview someone from a parent's perspective. So if you are a parent of a survivor of abuse, please reach out. I'd love to hear from you, and you can have your name changed your voice changed, we can definitely accommodate you. If you do enjoy this episode, please go onto my website, franciscamusic.com, for more information on show notes, for to see what else is going on. I will be announcing some exciting news on our next podcast. And just one more thing, if you do enjoy the show, please share this with someone else you think may enjoy this podcast as well. And of course, please subscribe, leave a review, and reach out to me. You can always reach out on Facebook, Instagram, my handle is Francisca Music, or email me at franciscak at gmail.com. Today on the show with us, we have Shua. We go by first names here. And Shua reached out and he would like to share a story. I'm excited about the story because we're going to add a new twist in this story because Shua does go forward, press charges, and we'll find out what happens in the episode. So the mic is yours, and feel free to start wherever you feel comfortable, wherever you feel it's relevant. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I just got tremendously nervous. <laughs> so uh, I guess my story goes back to, uh, I grew up with uh, one of uh, 12 in uh, Lakewood pretty yeshivish family. And I would say that from a very young age, I, I felt like I didn't fit in. And I, I mentioned this because I think it played a big role into how vulnerable I was. And uh, I, I was constantly doing things to try to try to fit in. Like I said, I, I came from a pretty big family and uh, I, I would try to do things to stand out. And I also had a lot of trouble in school. You know, I had trouble sitting still. I had trouble grades wise and uh, just sort of Socially and uh, uh, it just a constant feeling of I, I I'm different I don't fit in I'm I'm not good enough and uh, you know I'm not getting good grades and that was a school where they were hitting the kids I would uh, I would get hit a lot and and uh, sort of the the psychological message I kept getting as a kid was I'm different I'm not good enough and yeah I was uh, ten years old and I came across a guy by the name of Yosef Koko. He was a camp counselor in uh, 
in our in our summer camp. The school had a summer camp, and uh, he was like the most respected counselor. And, and mind you, at that point, I'm I'm literally doing anything I can to try to uh, fit in, to try to feel wanted, to try to, you know what I mean? I'm I'm getting in trouble every day in school. I'm I'm socially not doing that well. I come across him and he's, he's the, he's the coolest counselor in camp. Everyone respects him. And like, it, it would mean the world to me if he would just pay some attention to me. And he does. He puts me in his play and, you know, I have a tremendous passion for music and, and performing. And he puts me in the, in the camp play and he puts me in the camp choir and he's giving me individual attention and I'm loving it. <laughs> you know, that's the, uh, that's exactly, it's everything I needed. Now I'm cool. Now now, because he respects me, I'm respected. Like it's all, it's all clicking into place, and that's uh, that's that summer. Um, I don't see him a lot during the year. He was a substitute teacher. He he substituted my class also. And when when he was substituting the class, I was able to do really what I wanted. I was, you know, it was like really. There was definitely a very specific interest in me, and at that time, that was that felt amazing, you know. And then fast forward to the next year. I, again, academically, I'm doing even worse, and socially, I'm doing even worse, and I'm getting older, and 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 you know, really, just kind of uh, in a really bad place. And he's already sort of laid, laid down that connection. And basically, I remember actually telling my mother once that this is the, this was this guy was the only friend I have. So I was talking to my mother about friends, like about my friends, and I said I have one friend, and his name is Joseph Coco, and he's 34. And my mother's like, no, that's that's not a good idea just to jump through it a little bit. So basically he, at some point during that summer, he started grooming me, which is basically, you know, stepping a little bit outside the lines. Anyway, I think that summer he basically started taking it to a different, slightly more inappropriate level. Again, nothing that I, I was completely alarmed at, but I, I didn't really know what was going on. I was a little loopy. I was definitely very, very excited about the rewards of, of having him as as my quote unquote friend kind of didn't didn't really pay much attention to. He would take me into uh, you know into like private rooms and and do some like weird stuff that I didn't understand. I I just didn't you know I, I didn't feel like it made any it wasn't worth making a problem over because I got so much out of out of my relationship with him. And then fast forward during that year, that's when the abuse really started. And 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 he he definitely um he definitely knew what he was doing. In the sense of he eased his way in. Uh, there was I pushed back in the beginning, and he he knew how to deal with that. Um, I mean, it, it sounds very disgusting to say, but he's definitely someone who was highly experienced in in abusing children, and um, that the abuse went on for for quite a while, for about a year, a little less than a year. What ended up happening uh, is. For a very long time, I, for the majority of the abuse, I hated him. I hated what was going on and did not feel like I had the ability to do anything about it. And I would try to like, like it, he was what he wasn't married. It was my hope that like he would get married and like leave me alone, you know? Uh, and I remember having conversations with him just kind of like, so how's your dating going? <laughs> like, uh, well, you know, like, like literally trying to give him dating advice. So that he can leave me alone and, and things like that. You know, eventually I think he, he left me alone for a little bit, long enough for me to 
Well, the other thing during that year is that this was my biggest secret. And, and I, I was aware of it at every, you know, at every moment. And I was always on the lookout for when I can possibly tell somebody. I think he, he left me alone for a little bit. I don't know if he was busy or doing something else or I don't know what his deal was. But I had a free moment to kind of process somewhat what was going on. And um, I had friends over. I used to like uh, Shabbos. I used to like going out and um, I used to like walk to classmates. I sort of soft told them, like I, I, I told them I have a secret and I, I didn't tell them like too many details, but I, I told them, I, I think the reaction was pleasant enough that I felt comfortable telling my father. Eventually I, I did tell my father, I, that's, this is the way I remember it. Uh, the, the, <laughs> I was seeing a therapist at the time and she thinks I told her first, but I don't remember telling her first. I remember telling her, but I don't think I told her first, but anyway. <laughs> How old were <laughs> well, you? Uh, I was 12 when I told um, my parents. I, I did tell my father on the way home from a therapy session that, that I do remember. I was, seeing a, I was seeing a therapist in Lakewood for supposedly because of my, my bad behavior in, at school or, you know, my inability to sit still. And, and like I mentioned earlier, like I had these issues before being molested. Uh, you can imagine while being molested how much of a, uh, how difficult sitting in school was for me. So, you know, I was seeing a therapist and, and on the way home, I told my father, the whole time, the whole way home, I was like, I, I need to tell you something. And my father was very, very pleasant about it. He's like, look, if there's anything you need to tell me, you, you wouldn't get in trouble. There's no, uh, and, and he, he definitely made himself as available as possible. Uh, he definitely said that multiple times in, in, in that year. I think it was, I think they knew something was up. They weren't quite sure what or what to do about it. But yeah, I, I eventually told them at, at 12 I told him and I went to sleep and I, I basically said, you can't do anything without letting me know first. And I, I didn't give him much details that, you know, I, I didn't really, I didn't know the word molestation. I didn't know anything. I just kind of said, somebody makes me pull down my pants or something like that. I didn't really, I didn't really want, I didn't really know how to articulate what I, what was going on. Um, I went to sleep. I found out afterwards that my father stayed up all night. Basically there was a short period in where they went to a best in Lakewood and it seemed like Coco was cooperating, uh, which means, by the way, which is like the easiest, like that, that, that would have been him getting away pretty easily because all he had to do was go to therapy and quit his job with kids, which he ultimately didn't follow through with. He stopped doing that and um, he wasn't going to therapy and he was he got another job in a camp, which interpreted to us or to me would be that he had every intention of continuing to do what he did, what he was doing. So we went to the police. <laughs> very, at that time, definitely, it was it was a very unheard of thing to do. I don't know of anyone else that did that at that time. There was another case that came forward like two years afterwards in, in Williamsburg. The, the, the community had a hard time dealing with it. The reaction uh, of people were um, very strong and very loud. They were, I, I don't think it was everyone. I think it was um, a couple people making a lot of noise, but basically the community was not, it was an adjustment for the community. We'll say it like that. We got, uh, harassed on the daily friend, people, you know, that were in my neighborhood would see me on the street and yell at me that I'm going to go to Gehenna. My father's going to go to Gehenna. And, you know, it was very, very, very public. It was very hard to stay. Like we went away for that summer. Like it, it was right before the summer, the last couple of days of school that, and then I went to the police and 
that summer we kind of like escaped Lakewood for for just to kind of uh, not have to deal with that. And 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 when we got back, it was pretty evident that uh, it would be very hard to live there. I think my father, with his personality, would would have been fine living there. But uh, um, my mother and and the rest of us were were getting kind of tired of the phone calls and 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 you know my father was a rov of a show and um, I was actually dominating there at the time. And two guys came running in, yelling, screaming, and handing out papers. And they had to literally physically pick him up and throw him out. So it's kind of scary for like a 12-year-old kid just kind of watching this unfold. So I just have a few follow-up questions. You said, and I don't know if you didn't want to go into it, but could you give a few examples of grooming and the, the boundaries being crossed, yet it's not sexual abuse yet? Um, just as an example for someone who might be wondering or who would like to give exact examples to their children sure. or, or know of certain things that are no-nos, that are clear signs of red flags. Sure. Well, I think um, he used to call it hawk, which is, by the way, everyone uses that term pretty innocently, but for me, it, like, it, it, it hurts me every time I hear it or even say it. But he used to call it hawk. And, and, and what that meant initially was, first of all, the, in the grooming process was, it, what a red flag would be is just the, all that individual attention, sitting next to me on the bus, sitting, you know, first of all, in the fact that he was on the bus, but just sort of all that, all that individual attention. And specifically when it started moving into that direction where just where he was testing the waters, he would, there was, uh, he would either take me to an empty classroom or there was construction going on upstairs. He'd take me upstairs, which, by the way, we weren't allowed to be upstairs, so that was a no-no in, the, in itself. He, he would ask me to lean against him fully clothed, that, that sort of thing, and he would, like, touch me fully clothed. Yeah, like, like you know, it, it's clearly wrong and, and inappropriate, but not so wrong and inappropriate that I'm, that I would necessarily, you know, know enough to be, to have a problem with it, you know? Right. So it seems like the fact that your parents were very open and accepting, or at least your father, and he was in a position of influence and where this could potentially hurt him. He, it's not something that he just shoved under the rug, which is very nice to hear in these circumstances. So what happens after this? You, you come out, you're in therapy, your family stays in Lakewood or they move? Ultimately, we, we, we move. We're, we're, that summer when we were in Chicago, we were thinking of maybe setting up shop in Chicago. Again, so we, we came forward. The process is, for those who don't know, the process is um, I came forward when I was 12, which it was actually a pretty extensive process of talking to detectives who are trained in this, who try to trip you up, who ask you, don't try to trip you up, but they're, they're very, very careful. They don't just, you don't just go forward and arrest people for those. I got a lot of comments like, uh, like anyone could just come forward and do that. It's, it's actually quite challenging. You would have to really, 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 uh, I don't know. I, I don't think a 12 year old can be trained to be able to lie in that matter when you have trained detectives, uh, uh, you know, if someone's arrested for, for abuse, that means that there was a, a pretty big process that happened, you know, before before they were arrested. It wasn't just he touched me and then he gets arrested. There's a, there's a pretty significant uh, interrogation. There was about four years between the time I came forward until he actually was tried in court, which is quite, it's usually about two years. So there was uh, some things that he's did, that he did throughout the way, like 
um, he changed lawyers and, and whatever. He did different, uh, different things to try to push off the trial, which from my view is if, if you're guilty, the only, the only option you have is to push it off. So I was a little, I was a little out of it. You know, it wasn't, I didn't have to think about it. I thought he was going to plead guilty. So I didn't really like where my, where my head was, is I was just, I was doing my thing. I finished, uh, I was 13. I was going into yeshiva. Oh, one of the problems was, is that since I came out, since I went to the police, um, I got kicked out of yeshiva without even going in. That's actually part of the story. I was going to go to yeshiva in Lakewood. And after this kind of came out, uh, my father got a call that I'm no longer welcome in that yeshiva. So it was a it was a challenge for him. I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't again. I was a little out of it. I was a little, you know, I was doing my thing. I wasn't really too focused on what was going on. I was a little, um, I was a little numb to it. I guess it was a little, uh, uh, it was a little much for me. But uh, I, I eventually, my father got me into a yeshiva in Detroit. So I started there, and eventually, it just made sense for everyone to follow along. My my brother's school closed down. That was actually the school that I. That I went to, that I was hit at, you know. So I was, I was actually kind of happy that it closed down. What do you mean you were hit at? The teachers and the principal were we used to hit the kids as a form of discipline. I think by at a certain point they stopped doing that, but uh, I still had a bad taste in my mouth <laughs> from 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 just from that school being around. So I was actually kind of kind of relieved that it that it closed down. We ended up all you know moving to Detroit. Just made the most sense, and my parents are still there. And uh, are are quite happy there, actually. Okay, so you're settled now in a new place, and you're getting older. Are you already removed from the process of of arresting your abuser, or is this still ongoing? I, you know, I, I it's not my main focus. There's there's a lot of stuff that's going on. He's doing a lot of funky stuff. There's a lot of politics in the Jewish community that I I completely. Uh, I remember my father asked me, like, hey, do you want to hear an update? My father was very involved. My grandfather was very involved. I, as much as possible, just did not want to hear about it. The only time it really took up my time was there was multiple trial dates. The first date was, was set for about two years. And so it's a big deal now because we're in Detroit. So whole family, and there's a lot of us. So, you know, my whole family kind of came into town. Um, going to Lakewood itself is, is, is a challenge for me doing all the trial prep, which is, you know, kind of really delving into, you know, all the details, you know, which is just opening up those, those, those scabs, uh, which is really challenging. And then only to have it pushed off again, you know, a day before the trial, it's kind of a challenge. So during, during those four years, there were a couple of times that we all came in for trial prep, kind of got, got into it. And then, uh, they, they convinced the judge to push it off and, uh, and we all went back to Detroit. <laughs> But for the most part, I, I kind of stayed out of it uh, until I got a little older. So what happened was, is uh, I wasn't doing too well in yeshiva. And uh, eventually I, I left when I was like 16. Uh, and by the way, the trial still didn't happen. Wow. I left. Uh, I really stopped going to yeshiva and I got a job. Leading up to the trial, I, I, I actually couldn't really focus on my job either. And I kind of, like with like a couple of weeks before, just kind of kind of took off. I think all the the nerves started setting in and it was just, uh, it was a lot. So before we talk about the trial, were you the first one who came forward against this abuser? Yeah, publicly. I, I think I know that he, so as, like as far as in the legal system, sure. I, I do think that there were stuff that happened. He used to be a counselor in Camp Aguda and then got kicked out for these kind like, you know, it's always very vague and under the, under the carpet, like, 
you know, stuff happened basically, and he had to move to Lakewood. You know, I think uh, I'm, I'm I'm definitely the first person to legally face him and to publicly face him as well. And did people join you throughout the legal process? So during those four years, no, uh, I didn't hear from any any victims of his. I did get a call right away. I got a call from somebody I went to school with who was in his English class, so it would have a lot of contact with him. And I got a call that uh, he wanted to talk to me and then uh, backed out, which is weird for like a 12-year-old kid. There aren't usually these kind of arranged meetings, you know, between friends. <laughs> like, I have something I want to tell you, like, let's meet at this coffee shop, let's meet at this pizza place or whatever it is. And like, it, it was pretty clear that something was going on, but didn't end up following through with it. I think something with his parents. But it seemed like that's what he was uh, trying to do. But anyway, during during the during the process, no one... Um, no one else came forward, but uh, at some point during the trial, two more victims came forward. Okay, so would you like to talk a little bit about the trial process? Yeah, so the trial is, is uh, interesting. So like I mentioned before about trial prep, there was we, we got started on trial prep, and um, what that means is I'm essentially sitting down with the uh, prosecutor and the detective and... They're just sort of asking me the same questions that that they're going to ask me on the stand, and and kind of just just to make sure that I'm I'm in good shape, like that I'm not going to get myself in trouble, or kind of what to prepare myself for. Like he's going to probably try to ask you this, he's going to try to embarrass you, he's going to try to say this, don't fall for this trap. You know, they they've seen this enough, they they know what the lawyer is going to try to do, and they sort of try to prep me as much as possible. You know, and. As a part of that, like, like for example, she's showing me the room that it's going to be in. So then I'm like, I know I have a, I have a second to like get comfortable. And I know whenever different things like I can ask for water, if I want water, I can ask for a minute, like different, just sort of to get me prepped and ready and, you know, ready to do it. As well as going over, like I said, all the itsy bitsy details of, of what happened, what color his car was, like literally every every little thing that will try to make me look, you know, try to make me look bad if I don't remember or things like that. So, which by the way, I said, I said many times that I don't remember. And I think that didn't make me look any less credible. If I don't remember, I don't remember. That's, that's, that's all it was. Also, one of the big things of a trial prep before we get to the trial itself is that I, I was able to get in touch with another victim who was going through this, who actually went through this. And she was incredible in giving me tips, like bringing a stress ball on the stand that was like, who would have thought of that? But like, that was amazing. We talked for a while and it really, really helped to have that. So I guess I'm just putting it out there if anyone is going through this. And, and um, I'm, I'm definitely 100% open to, to walking you through it or talking about my, my you know, talking, giving some tips. Uh, but uh, the trial was, uh, was, was very scary. Uh, it... Uh, I, I wasn't allowed. To, my father was test, was testifying as a witness, so I couldn't. He couldn't be there in my, you know to hear my testimony. I couldn't hear his. Um, I it was very sort of isolated. Uh, the room was filled with about I don't know, like uh, probably probably about half of the room was was his family or his supporters. About a couple of people supporting me. Um, my, my personal family, not so many people came, um, but uh, um, enough, you know, my, my grandparents came and I don't try to think of, I think, I think that was it um, for the trial. Um, 
but there were a couple of people from like the community and uh, people that saw me before and just said that they're supporting me. So, but uh, I, I think uh, on the stand, I think I, I, I dissociated. I, I basically, I was like focus, zeroed in on, on whoever was asking me the questions, whether it was the prosecutor or the lawyer. And I, um, I just answered each question as they, as they came, you know, I remember it was like the long, I don't know how long I was on the stand, but it was like the longest, that was the longest day. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just a lot. You, the guy is, is, you know, the, the person who has caused you so much pain is sitting right in front of you and staring at you. And, um, you know, he's got a room full of people and then the, the jury it's, it's, you know, it can be a lot, but, um, but I, I think for like where my head went is I'm, I'm just going to listen to the questions and answer the questions. And another thing that they, they like to do is they like to ask, they like to sort of um, give you, like make you agree to something that's not totally true. And then they'll, um, then they'll try to like, tr and then they'll try to like keep that lie going basically. So they'll say like, so is it true that the, and they give a very general statement and, and they know that there's one part of that that's not true. And then they'll like, well, didn't you do this and this on this and this day or whatever it is. And then they basically try to make you look like, uh, like a liar. I, I think my, my, my strategy of just zeroing in on, on that question and just not even thinking like my brain wasn't functioning enough for me to think, well, I answered five minutes ago, something else. Like I just literally, uh, you know, I literally, they asked the question. I thought about, you know, I just, ans I answered the question, you know, and I'm going off my memory, I'm going off like what happened. So I don't need to worry about being consistent. And if it comes out inconsistent, that's, I don't, you know, I don't, whatever, if I answer something else differently, I don't know. Like this is, this is my answer. This is what, this is the truth for me. Um, anyway, so I did that. That was, uh, that was on a Wednesday. Um, it was sort of a, a full day of back and forth between the lawyer and the prosecutor. And uh, it was just sort of very, very, uh, very intense, uh, both, you know, emotionally and, and uh, just very draining as well as like, it's really, really, really almost like reliving the trauma. It's like very, it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot. And um, it was Wednesday, Thursday, my father testified and, and some other witnesses, like uh, he's, he, his therapist was able to testify and my therapist testified and uh, just, you know, different witnesses. Uh, there was no court on Friday. So Monday morning, the prosecutor came in and said that there were two more victims that came forward. After that, he pled guilty to all the charges. I think I was already in Detroit, which uh, which I was like bummed because like uh, I, th I think it would have been satisfying to see it all end, you know. So first of all, thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing these very elongated and excruciating periods in your life, moments. Did your abuser try to justify himself to you or try to convince you to change your mind? Was there any of that or was he not allowed to talk to you anymore at a certain point? And what, was there any denial? What, what was the confrontation like for you? So again, from, from my personal perspective, and, and yes, there's definitely a, uh, uh, there's definitely tremendous, um, uh, laws in place about uh, um, intimidation of, of a witness and, and um, uh, just in general. Um, so there was no contact between me and him after I uh, went to the trial, but there was a tremendous amount of pressure from the community and 
many different forms, uh, which I just kind of like, I didn't personally necessarily take, I, I realized that that was going on, but I didn't really, it felt like my father was the one who was really taking on a lot of the, a lot of the slack in, in that, in that um, regard. All the letters were really um, t targeting him. He was the one who was, who was being called a, a miser or whatever it is. He was the one who really wasn't. Uh, well, this was all happening because of him, because otherwise a minor, I don't think, can proceed to trial on his own. I mean, maybe he can't. Uh, could be. I, it, I think you're, it, he definitely was happening because of him, because it was his idea. I, at that point, I was following through. I'm, I'm very, very happy that he chose to to do that. And and at this point, I, there, was a, there was definitely a point after the trial where I'm just sort of trying to recover, and I'm angry at, at, at everyone and everything. <laughs> And uh, I'm really trying to process it all. And there was a time where I was very angry. It was like, now now I'm in a worse position. I'm not happy and I don't care that he's like, you know what I mean? I was just kind of like, uh, um, I remember, so I stayed in contact with uh, with that other um, uh, survivor who went through trial. And I was, I remember texting her like, this is, this sucks. <laughs> like, I'm not, like now I went through this. Everybody knows my story. Everybody like, uh, it was like pretty public and, um, and I'm just, you know, it didn't, it didn't help anything. That was my immediate um, reaction. But definitely where I'm at today and, and didn't take very long to to um, feel a tremendous sense of of closure and um, just sort of uh, it, it, uh, just allow me to to like put a lid on it and, and, and start moving on. It's really incredible because so many survivors and victims do not go forward because of this brutal process of what on the prosecution level or to the legal system what it does to the person who already went through all the trauma so it's reliving it you might be thrown under the bus and and disqualified or the defender the abuser might even be let go at the end so it's it's such a not it's not a guaranteed success outcome. If anything, even if you do get a successful outcome, the toll it takes on oneself is tremendous just to get there. So how does that affect you now as an adult? The fact that you have overcome something extremely massive in your life and you've done it successfully. You probably encouraged a lot of other people to come forward. And I, I feel like some people don't let it define their life, but you and your family chose to proceed in a certain way that did define your youth in a big way. How, how does that affect you as an adult? Well, I think that, first of all, whether I like it or not, it's, 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 it's here. Like, uh, I can either, I think people who don't choose to let it define their life. I'm saying not define necessarily, but that did take a huge part of your life. Sure. As opposed to somebody who goes to therapy and then, totally focuses on something else this was taking up i mean you say you had to fly in for the trial or drive in and it was so ongoing it was so over consuming it consumed up your life so whether it was defining your life or not it was a big part of your everyday life for a really long time sure well so i think so i see it as two parts of sort of what, what was going on then that that caused us to make that um decision to really focus in so much and and how is that affecting me today um, I, I think the, uh, back then, uh, my father was extremely motivated by the fact, again, he's, 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 uh, my father's the, probably the, well, uh, 
he was just an, an incredible person. And, and he was motivated by, uh, not by justice, not by revenge, but by the fact that this guy is out there and he can continue doing it. And he will continue to do it if he's not stopped. And so my father viewed it as this is like life, life, life and death. Like this guy, when you have um, in Jewish law, when you have a, a right if someone who's a murderer who's out there, it's your obligation to stop him. So that, that was my father's motivation. Um, and where he felt like he had, he had a, a halachic obligation to follow through with it. Um, the, uh, for, for me right now, look, I, I've, I've been through, you know, I've been through a, tre- a tremendous amount of, of therapy and, and, uh, work on it. And, um, and, uh, it, it's been, it's been a long journey. That's, that's still ongoing. And it's going to be ongoing probably for the rest of my life. But, um, the, the fact that he, I, I, I'm sure a lot of victims can relate to this, but, uh, like, uh, or, or survivors, <laughs> but, uh, you know, like I, I, if, when I'm on the subway in New York, like if there's anyone who resembles him, I, I get nervous, but like, there's a certain sense of comfort that I get, that I know it can't be him because he's in jail, <laughs> you know? Um, and he, even I, he, you know, the, the, there are like little, little perks that I feel safer in the world that, that he's not, um, that he's not around. Um, I, you know, I, I always have, I have like different nightmares and stuff that, uh, <laughs> that he's going to show up or, or, um, I haven't had them recently, but I definitely like when I was working, uh, in, in Detroit, like, uh, I remember vividly like the door ringing in my, my head when maybe that's him. <laughs> um, so like different, different, um, there's a different sense, you know, it provided a certain sense of comfort. Like it, it can't be him. Um, and, uh, I, I think that, that, you know, but uh, touching on the, on the subject of, of other people might not get the outcome. I, I think the, the, I, I went to a treatment center in, in Florida called the refuge, which is uh, an incredible place, which I was very, very lucky enough to be able to get in. Um, and, uh, I, I remember there, um, almost feeling guilty for having, for having, being able to go come forward and having, being able to have the result that I had, whereas other people, uh, either didn't have the kind of parents that I had or uh, didn't have the, the, the same result. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but I, I, I think, and, and my heart goes out for, for, for them. And, and, uh, um, but I think the, w- what seems to be very apparent to me is that the act of going through, and I'm, I really shouldn't be talking this so much because I, you know, I, I'm not in their position necessarily, but the the act of going through it is 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 the act of of providing closure, and and the outcome is not necessarily in um, your hands, or not you know it's not something that you can necessarily control the outcome. But uh, regardless, you you sharing your story, and you um, doing whatever you can to um, to 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 stop this person from continuing to hurt other people. Uh, as well as, you know, uh, just provides, um, is, is this, is the first step in the road to recovery. I think it's the first, the first, whether, 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 you know, whether he gets locked up for life or, uh, or, or gets away scot-free, 
you, you did your part to, um, you, you do, you did what you had to do and, and, um, uh, or you, you know, yeah, you did your part into, into stopping into, I guess, yeah, I'm trying to figure out the word I'm trying to say, but you, you did your part and basically whatever else happens is out of your hands, but, but it, it allows that road to, um, to recover. I think you had someone on your show who said that, uh, you know, they knew that it wouldn't really do anything, but they, uh, they basically told someone just for the sake of, they, they needed to get it out. And I, I, that, that resonated very strongly with me. I think that regardless of the outcome, you need to get the story out. You need to get the, this, the, the secrets are the, are the are, are, these, these kind of secrets are the ones that, that are going to kill you, you know, that are going to really eat you and, and getting it out there, regardless of, of the outcome, there'll be people who uh, will believe you and will support you um, and just zero in on them. <laughs> wow. And is there anything, a part of your adult life now that you either carry on or is your mission or some sort of involvement in this, just because you do have a lot of experience in the sense of you went through the legal process, quote unquote, you are a success case because everyone's a success case, technically speaking, but you're somebody who could say, you know, I did it. I, I went to the finish line or what, if there is even a finish line, is there something that, that you're dedicating toward this? Or is this something you're putting behind and you're focusing now on the next stage of your life, which is absolutely legitimate and everyone should look at the next stage of their life and try to do something that's not relevant but sometimes survivors do take this and say you know what this happened to me for a reason and i want to do something related to this so i'm just curious is that something so for for a very long time well i don't know for a very long time but definitely you know from uh when i was i remember when i was like 13 um my mom. So first of all, when I was twelve, uh, people my age, like I can, I was very, it was very easy for me to spot out who else was molested because there are certain behaviors that, um, or certain knowledge and certain kind of like things that are very, very apparent. Like twelve-year-olds don't really know about different sexual things or you know different things that are, um, you know, uh, whatever. As a twelve-year-old, I was able to kind of pick out from a crowd. So I actually realized um, uh, about someone in my class who was uh, who was molested, and I, I felt you know I, I I talked to him, and he actually told me. And uh, uh, as a twelve year old, I don't think I handled that as well as I could have. <laughs> I did the best I could, but uh, I think ultimately uh, I wasn't um, I wasn't really equipped to 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 deal with that. Uh, but definitely, I did, I did feel a sense of responsibility if, if I can try to help somebody um, that I should do it. But I, I think for a little bit, for as far as doing any, any official thing, for uh, I've, I've been approached a little bit, uh, especially before or, or following um, the trial, and I found that it was incredibly triggering, like um, unbelievably difficult just to just to be on the phone or just to kind of even be involved in it. And I, I couldn't imagine myself being able to. Uh, emotionally tolerate, um, you know, dealing with this and, and being aware of it. Like I, if, if, uh, if at that point, definitely if like a, uh, if, uh, if, if a documentary on molestation came up, I, I wouldn't be able to watch it or, if, you know, uh, or if even something lighter, if there was like a comedy joke about molestation, it would, it would bug me or, 
different things like that. Uh, if I would read something, if it, you know, it, it was very, very, I, was, I would say it was in a very, 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 very fragile state. Uh, and it didn't take a lot to get me uh, kind of triggered and, and, and um, you know, not, uh, not okay. And for that reason, I didn't really, uh, I didn't really involve myself so much. And I think recently um, I've been doing a lot better with that. Um, as is apparent with the, with this interview, uh, or, or, or doing things like this where, um, I do try to reach out whenever I can. And, um, it does give me, it fills me with a, with a, with a certain sense of life that I, I, it's hard to get from really anything else. Like there's a certain sense of purpose and, um, uh, you know, comfort that I get from, from doing this kind of work that, uh, that I don't really get from other areas in life. Doesn't take away, it's still quite challenging. I think it's still quite, uh, whenever I hear stories or whenever I talk to people, uh, it's very challenging. I'm making it sound like I talk to people all the time. I, I don't, and I, I do want to get more involved. Uh, but whenever, I'm definitely open to it uh, in, in more recently. Um, and uh, and whenever it does happen, it's, it's, it's always super, super challenging, but it, it, it's uh, it's something that I, I do feel like I, I can I can handle now and uh, it's something that I think also is, is tremendously helpful in a general way for me personally you know to be able to you know to uh, it just gives me a sense of purpose and, and um, that I don't get really from anything else right makes a lot of sense I do want to close up with this question and it might be a little odd sounding and I've heard other survivors say that there's a certain amount of love-hate toward the abuser. For example, you did mention how he was your only friend at one point, and you got a lot out of the relationship, which there is that, well, you have to get over that relationship. Even past the abuse, sometimes there's some affection toward that person because they, you did get something out of that attention and, and the love or whatever, the messed up love. But... Was there any part of mourning right. that you had to get over, or did it become like someone standing there with a gun or with a knife, and it, that was the only part of the relationship to get over, only trauma? Or was there also some of the emotional attachment that was built up that you also had to mourn and get over? You know, I, I, I think the way you said it, it sounds like that would have been probably a healthy response. I, I think it really messed with my uh, ability to have proper relationships, I think, because of the, I think it, it didn't, it definitely didn't help with, you know, I, I think my attitude towards him was, you know, I think the, the what I internalized was that the relationships I make uh, can really, really hurt me. Um, and so maybe don't, maybe don't make any relationships at all. And I, I find that to be uh, um, a, a pretty popular, um, you know, internalization of, like I just have to be careful, and people, you know, and, and my walls come up, and I don't, I don't make relationships easily, uh, and and it, it still, it still plays me today for sure. It's it's very, it's very challenging for me to open up and to really trust people, um, and um, I don't have a lot of like intimate relationships uh, because of that, you know, because I, I because of, like I subconsciously sort of separate a little bit, and I think that you know to try to be to try to, um, it gives me that, that, that illusion of safety. Um, like you can't hurt me if I'm, if, if I don't really care about you, if that, that sort of thing. 
Um, so what I would say is that that's probably what my reaction was then, and, and it really hasn't served me. It served its purpose then, and it was very good that I was able to uh, develop a coping mechanism then, but uh, it, it really has uh, kind of gone in my way now. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think through a series of um, of small little steps of, of opening up to people in, in, in very small ways um, and not being hurt by that and opening up a little more and you know, I've been able to make progress in that, in that field. Definitely, still have a lot, still have a lot of work to do. But uh, we're, we're, we're uh, as they say, progress, not perfection. So. Absolutely. So, is there anything else you'd like to share before we close? Do you feel like you got it off your chest the way you'd like it to be? Sure. I, I mean, I, I think in general, as as to any to any victim or anyone going through this or has been through this. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, I think it's very apparent that times are changing. You know, I think there was a point where uh, people, where there was a concern that people wouldn't believe you or, or that, uh, but, but today there's tremendous communities of, of people uh, offering support and, and, um, and um, uh, you know, if you are suffering, whether uh, there, there's, there's many different um, programs out there that, uh, that can help you in any different way, whether it's uh, therapy or um, uh, just someone to talk to or, or whatever, whatever is different resources that are available to help you cope after, after being through something like that. My suggestion is that you reach out. Uh, so thank you so much, Shua, for coming onto the show and really being vulnerable, opening up. We hope this helps other people. Thanks again so much for listening to the No More Silence episode. If you would like to write in or request to be on the show, please do so by emailing me at franciscak at gmail.com. That's F-R-A-N-C-I-S-K-A-K-A-Y at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and go to iTunes and leave us a good review. With your review, the show will rank higher and help others discover the show. This Francisca Show podcast will be hosting a No More Silence special on abuse once a month. However, do check in on other weeks for the interviews with female Jewish creatives. See you next time.